Sup, nerds! This is In My Expert Opinion, a podcast about the nonfiction side of speculative fiction. Your hosts are Dr. Marcus Cole. I'm technically a scientist. Sarah Ward. I'm a scientist in progress. And me, Abby Cole. I'm not a scientist at all. Join us as we geek out about the made-up stuff we love and the real stuff that shaped it. Today we're talking about Full Metal Alchemist lore and also human sacrifice. Nice. Actually, not nice. It sounds pretty depressing, actually, but... No, man, I'm just trying to keep it light. You know, it's it's pandemic time, so I thought a little bit sure. of uh, world history, Levity. cultural uh, study of Amestris and the greater world of Full Metal Alchemist, and then the obvious associations to human sacrifice were just a nice light topic. Yeah, I mean, we were way too serious with the first two, um, and this is just bringing us back to that, like, levity that we really need. Exactly. And it's, like, almost been exactly one year since I went into, like, full lockdown in California, so it's great Love. day yeah. <laughs> for this. That's our human sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like I sacrificed my uh, social life this year, so... Well, did you have one to begin with, though, is the question. That's true. Ooh. I mean, I think I, I felt like I was starting to have one a little Ooh. bit. <laughs> Burns. Yeah. Burns. Just just like Mustang did to us. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so bring it back. Um, tell us about this deep lore, the history. I'm interested. Lore. So it's deep in the sense that I felt like I did a deep dive, but there are definitely deeper divers out on the internet that I referenced a lot. So shout out to everybody on all the fandom wikis. Shout out to the internet. Shout out to the internet and the plethora of information. But yeah, I, I wanted to do a deep dive because the the kind of greater world of Full Metal Alchemist, um, Brotherhood, and like I mean all like the versions kind of stem from like the similar geography and culture, but we're focused on FMAB. Um is kind of interesting because it really tells a lot about how things kind of came to rise as far as like the whole plot unfolding and things that I thought would have happened given kind of how like geography set up that didn't which was kind of interesting so hmm, do tell get this started yeah so everything really kind of kicks off in the story in like historically in Xerxes and so we don't really know how old Xerxes is Wait, we just sorry. know uh, which one is that which one is Xerxes Xerxes is where the um dwarf in the flask and Helen oh. actually meet yeah that's right, like right, the, right. so they're kind of like this lost people because well their entire uh, nation was sacrificed for the sake of a uh, power and uh creating the uh or converting the dwarf in a flask into a actual uh living uh philosopher's stone along with Hohenheim. That's where the story really kind of starts. Before then there wasn't really much going on in like this region. So like Xerxes is just in the desert um between two pretty large landmasses. Uh I'd sent you all the map, but Shing is this giant country to the east which is I mean in the show it's like kind of depicted as I guess like the parallel would be, like, Asian nations to, like, the east of, like, Europe. Yeah, it's, like, basically China. It's basically China. Yeah, and so that's, and they're this massive nation to the east. And then you have this large desert area, which, I mean, like, I read some stuff online about people 
questioning why there weren't other nations in between here and probably just because there's no water or area to like grow any kind of uh, vegetation. Yeah. So people just didn't live. Like the fact that there were people in Xerxes at all was kind of amazing. I mean, historically, nations or like groups of people tend to build up and gather around bodies of water, right? Exactly. Because humans yeah. drink water. That's what yeah. I know about water. <laughs> When Xerxes is like meant to be like Persia, I mean, mm -hmm. it's like the name of a king from yes. Persia. Oh, really? Yeah. So I'm yeah. not surprised that they're just like, that's the nation. And then there's nothing else because it's just a massive desert. Yeah. Which is like a nice segue into this. Another fun fact. Uh, guess what the king's uh, queen, her name was? Cleopatra. A <laughs> <laughs> a mistress. Well, it was a good. It was a, <laughs> a good mistress. guess. <laughs> that was a good. That it was, was a good guess because there yes. were more than one Cleopatra. Oh found yeah. Out recently. <laughs> Wait. Really? And there was more than one Xerxes. Yeah. I Wait, mean, are we talking about real life? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. I, did, I didn't right. know that there was like more than one. It makes more sense now that I think about it because, like, if you look at like King Edward, there were like yes. multiple <laughs> Edwards. But <laughs> interesting. This honestly feels this like kind of takes cleopatra down a peg in my <laughs> sort of like well in terms of how like mythologically awe striking she is do you mm -hmm. know what i mean yeah like a bunch of them i was like all right i, I mean it's like i mean i guess <laughs> yeah no i, I mean like when i think of like ancient queens like i mean cleopatra is i mean she's one. up there right yeah that's like i i honestly never really considered a mistress but now i will because of a uh, full metal alchemist. Yeah, I didn't know that that was the name of the spouse. That's really cool. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And Amestris is the name of the country in full metal alchemist. Yes, yeah. and Amestris oh. is. Yeah, but Amestris actually did not exist up until 1511 in the history of the uh, story or the manga and the, the anime. Mm -hmm. There was basically in like in this map, you could imagine that there was really nothing where Amestris is. It was probably just like, some territories that belong to Creta, some that um belong to Erugo, and some that uh belong to Drachma, which were like the three other surrounding nations um around Amestris as it is uh when we're viewing the show. But up until like fifteen eleven there was nothing in this little kind of a point. And out of nowhere, um a kind of like little society of what I was able to find online were just like violent people that just kind of popped up in 1511 sure. at this like focal point. Um, the most like, I guess, like reputable date, which like we kind of learned about in the show is on July 1558 was the first like unprovoked attack from this like mystery nation of a mistress, um, against the nation of uh, Revere, or I think it's Revier. So I'm saying that right. I don't know. Is it meant to be French? I don't, it's R-I-V-I-E-R-E. Riviere. Riviere. <laughs> well, the thing is that, like, all the other countries are, like, vaguely other countries and also vaguely yeah. not. So maybe that one's supposed to be French. Yeah. And this is actually, like, kind of, like, a part of, like, what I think is now or is drachma at the time uh, when they do this. But I don't know if that really helps with the name. But the more important thing is, like, this is, like, the first documented, like, attack and it's also the oldest uh, crescent of blood when they're showing, like, the transmutation circle. That was, like, the first one. Yeah, so I guess let's, like, recap what the crescent of blood is really fast. Yeah, I was about to ask you to do that. The whole thing is that to do this, like, country-scale human transmutation to make philosopher stones, they have to create crescents of blood, so these areas of massive bloodshed in focal points of the transmutation circle. So it makes, like, a pentagram or something? So it's, like, a transmutation circle on, like, a 
I don't know what you would call it, like a big geographical regional level. Yeah, like the whole country of Amestris is a transmutation circle. Like it was made for that reason. Yeah. And then they have to like cause areas of like great catastrophe and bloodshed mm-hmm. to power it. It almost like it creates like the, I guess, boundary conditions of the um, transmutation circle. So basically nothing outside of that border is a part of the circle. But I guess mm-hmm. it's also meant to be kind of like focal points for like energy and like a conduit for like souls to be channeled into the larger transmutation circle. That also powers the alchemy in the Amestris area versus like the way alchemy is powered in like uh, Shane. Mm-hmm. Wild. Yeah, but crazy. But this was kind of like uh, the proof that Amestris really wasn't like, I guess, a naturally generated nation. It was something that just kind of came out of nowhere at like the border of all these other nations that was basically created by father solely, or at least like motivated by father to become a master so that it could, he could build this large transportation circle and ultimately gain like the power, power of the truth. So I guess the idea is that he took out the entire country of Xerxes and was like, mm-hmm. that was fun. I don't have another country because I did wipe out this one. So I guess I have to go <laughs> make one. And in yep. like 400 years, I'll be able to do it part two. Yeah. And he, it was the long game. He played the long game. And literally over from, like, the 1500s up until, like, when we start seeing, like, the show in, like, the 1900s, like, Amestris is just a straight-up military state. All they do is fight bordering nations and carving out their uh, place in the world, which is ultimately just going to be a um, transmutation circle. And the other nations that it kind of interacts with, we don't get that much exposure to. I would say probably Drachma is the one that like oh you mean russia yeah they- <laughs> well while the there's like no like direct parallel intended in this show like it's almost obvious so? that drachma no, i mean it's never explicitly it's never said. explicitly stated oh. and also the author the mangaka and like i think it was like in 2006 or 7 she had some interview where she was basically like it's not like direct parallels but yeah. like it's basically it's russia crete or Crete or whatever it's like basically the united states mm. Mm-hmm. Amestra is pretty strongly Germany, along with just kind of generally Europe. Yeah. But she pretty much was like, it's not like exactly, but... So is is this like her throwing shade at, at Germany for like expansionist and massive slaughter of people? I don't really know about throwing shade so much as just drawing inspiration. Yeah, similarities, inspiration. I'm going to say that it's shade. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm passing this judgment. She yeah. was trying to be mean about Germany and uh, had every reason to because... Uh, genocide's bad. That's my that's my hot take. <laughs> I I think the ho- I think it's a uh, it's very appropriate for 2021 for a hot take to be saying genocide is bad. Yeah, um, we but- can say that officially. <laughs> genocide is bad. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> you heard it here first. This <laughs> podcast does not support genocide. <laughs> oh, yay! All right. Yay! But yeah, so with Drachma being like the main one and or Russia, <laughs> um, that's kind of like who like we get to see the most because that's where Fort Briggs is and that's where like Olivier Armstrong is and where uh the what homunculus sloth like is kind of digging his tunnels so like the drachma mestris uh conflict is probably the one we really get to like see the most but historically a mestris has never been cool with really anybody they're just constantly starting shit, <laughs> constantly starting war- wars and 
it and it has to be constant because they literally have to build like an entire like transmutation circle so like um in around like 1835 you kind of see like the first like significant uh invasion in like the southeast region and like around um arugo which is actually the alchemical word for uh rust oh no shit really yeah Um, but yeah, and so that was in like 1835 and basically same deal as with Creta or Drachma, fought him back, took over the region. But this is also around the same time when, um, our favorite fearless leader, um, Fuhrer King Bradley actually takes up power. I mean, if we're going to talk about the parallels to Nazi Germany, we would be remiss if we didn't point out this motherfucker literally goes by Fuhrer King. Yes, his name is Fuhrer King yeah. Bradley. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that one's pretty obvious, right? A little bit That's on what the nose. I was going to say, inspiration is, is generous. Yeah. Well, I think inspiration is just because some parts of the country are clearly more like English countryside. Yeah. That's true. That's I mean, where like all the, the nice I guess, people are. Well, like, yeah. <laughs> like, the ideals of, like, the country are, like, clearly more on the Nazi Germany side in terms of, like, genocide and invading other areas and, like, having this military state and stuff. But then, you know, you have, like, Russ and Bull, where Ed and Al are from, and it's, like, mm-hmm. quaint little English country town and, like, very chill. Very small community, little automail industry, nothing, nothing major. Very chill until <laughs> they start trying to bring their mom back from the dead, and then it's yeah, like, them I mean, and burn to the ground. <laughs> it, it gets dark kind of quick. Yeah. Well, you know. In the way Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood does. Well, in the way the Full Metal Alchemist dark. operates. Anyway, you were saying that Fuhrer King uh, Bradley showed up about the time they invaded this other country? Yeah, so Fuhrer King takes over um, probably a couple decades, like, right after this. Um, but, like, Amestris is kind of scaling up its um, military action in, like, the southeast. And by the time um, Fuhrer King Bradley takes over, he's um, talking about expanding military action all over the place, but especially in the southeast, because um, guess what's going on in the southeast right around this time, y'all? Genocide. Uh, more genocide? Uh-oh. So Ishval is, let's just simplify it. They're the brown people in Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. I mean, considering how everyone else is so clearly like white European or East Asian. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's partly allegorical and it's partly literally true. Yes. And I like the, we can read into this and from a lot of different uh, angles, but I, it's interesting mainly because like the historically, like, I guess Amestris isn't like really a racist nation. They're not like out here killing people for no reason. They're killing people because they want to make a giant transmutation circle and like siphon the power of the truth. Right. It's not ethnic genocide. It's genocide for the purpose of power. It's genocide for the purpose of power, but if- Well, as wait a-, a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> it can be both. Oh, no, no, he's just saying that, like, up to this point, it, like, was not, like, such a clear allegorical- Yeah. I see, I see, I see. Like, okay. ethnic genocide. Yeah, 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 This is, like, the first one where it's, like, oh, because even, like, you see it in the culture of, like, a mistress. Like, there's just, like, this view of, like, Ishvalans as, like, basically, like, the immigrants in, like, their nation, mm-hmm. and it, it it's very, uh, the, the allegory is very uh, real <laughs> in that sense, but- the war actually kicked off in uh, 1901, um, and we get this whole background in the show with essentially, like, an assassination of, like, an Ishvalan child by a soldier, and we end up finding out that this was, like, envy in disguise, and this actually just kind of kicked off uh, the war in Ishval. Or the extermination, as they very frequently call it. Yeah, it really is an extermination. It's not really a good war, I guess, if you want a to good call it a good war. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, not- the whole thing was that their country was, like, lying to everyone else, saying that it was a necessary war. 
for. Yeah. Like people who weren't around Ishval. Oh, I guess also maybe just to clarify what we mean by Ishval. It's like, I feel like pretty clearly Middle Eastern. Yeah, I think that's in it. And also it is in like the southeastern region of the country. It actually um borders a little bit of Arugo. Oh, really? Yeah. And this is actually, I don't, I don't actually remember this from the show, but I just found this like reading. Arugo actually supplied Ishval with weapons for a while huh. during the war when they were also, because like everybody in the southeast is kind of getting screwed over by Mestris right now. Right. And so Arugo's like, well, we're not really like with a useful, but we'll help them screw over our enemy. And so they did supply them with weapons and that actually kind of... uh Gave them a little bit of a leg to stand on during the war. But when uh, the Amestris kind of like came down even harder on them when they um, were funding the weapons, um, Ishval actually asked for help from Arugo and they basically acted like they didn't know who they were. Oof. But what I don't think and the people of Arugo ever anticipated was that this um, like kind of moderate uprising of the Ishvalans resulted in uh, Fuhrer Bradley calling the 1908 Order of 3066, which sent state alchemists to the front lines of Ishval. I don't mean to throw in a reference where maybe it doesn't exist, but I would like to point out that I'm pretty sure Jedi Order 66 is what called for the elimination of all Jedi. Or rather, like the Order 66 in the Star Wars prequels is why all the Jedi were exterminated. So I'm not saying it's a parallel, but yeah, and also, and also, this is how Fuhrer Bradley gets his kicks. <laughs> <laughs> oh my well, God. That's my. <laughs> yep. Uh, the, with the order of 3066. 3066. Uh-huh. <laughs> nice, nice, Good nice rhyme. <laughs> um, Listen. But... <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, so back to the. Uh, State alchemists being the front line and uh, exterminating more more brown people in <laughs> an issue all. Uh, yeah, so this order basically completely changed the tide of the war. Like, this was no longer like, oh, two nations kind of at battle over land. And it was kind of like, I guess, like, if you want to call it like competitive. This was just a... It was a massacre. Like, you had the, uh, what, Scarlet uh, Alchemist who had basically a Philosopher's Stone at the time destructing everything. Is that motherfucking Kimberly? It is Kimberly, yeah. Good old Kimberly. I fucking hate that guy. I mean, he is really bad. This guy wears all white. He's got a dumb fedora. He's got two dumb skinny long bangs on either side of his dumb face and a weird greasy ponytail. And he gets off on genocide. And he gets off on genocide. I hate this guy. Dude, Kimberly did all the war crimes. Like, if you want to talk about, like, historically in this world, the worst person. Cheerfully. A lot of people did war crimes. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, a lot, like, of, you a have, lot of people like, war crimed. <laughs> Riza and Hawkeye, for example, or Riza and, like, Roy, for example, like, talking about, like, how they participated in this extermination. Mm-hmm. And then obviously how that, like, drove them to try to be better people and, you know, atone for their crimes and everything. And then you have over fucking here, Kimberly just being like, haha, this is so much fun, guys. Watch this. Yeah. <laughs> And he has the worst outfit. And he has, he has the worst, the worst bangs. outfit. <laughs> the it's, white suit with the fedora is very bad. It's so bad. It, uh, listen, I, I understand that sartorial crimes are not as bad as war crimes, but it just adds insult to injury is my point. <laughs> but this this is like kind of like a huge event that has like, I mean, the ramifications are like felt throughout the entire like series, like with everybody dealing with what they've done there. Kimley basically being proud of it and kind of just continue his uh, war crimes elsewhere. Um, Armstrong having issues with all of the war crimes he committed. Um, but this does effectively 
and the war. Ishval is no longer a thing. South, um, Eastern Amestris is now completely controlled by, like, Central. By that time, we basically get up to the point in the show, or after the war, there's probably, like, another decade of some other skirmishes around the, like, perimeter of the uh, state, or nation-state. And then, like, also the... Right before the show starts, this is actually where a lot of, like, initial warring is happening with uh, Drachma. Yeah, because they need to carve out the new crescent, like, up there. Mm-hmm. One of the, I guess, like, kind of interesting systems in Full Metal Alchemist, um, that actually kind of, like, is the reason probably Amestris was able to be so dominant, is this, like, their central focus on alchemy and their whole state alchemist system because this has allowed them to advance their technology their alchemical resources dominate all of wars when they're constantly at battle like they're literally a nation that's surrounded by enemies and they're always just expanding and this really wouldn't be possible if they didn't have all the access to power which is kind of like father's whole plan focus all of this alchemical power in one nation and then expand but yeah, so I'm going to take some time to talk about the state alchemical alchemist system because it's actually kind of cool. Like, I mean, other than like the war crimes, obviously, and being like a dog of the state. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. I mean, you kind of have to war crime sometime, but. <laughs> kind of yeah. have to war crime sometime. But yeah, I mean, like it, the whole like idea of, I guess, like centralizing power is very much like uh, something that. I think nations historically have done, and then they normally end up, like, once they centralize power, they kind of just start taking out their enemies. Yes. For fun, I guess. It's It, it works. It's it's a strategy that's known to work. It's consolidate power and then expand. I will say, the general idea of, like, state-funded research and technology is definitely a thing that happens and continues to happen, even if it's not, like, for this, like, evil purpose. But mm-hmm. I mean- I don't know. Marcus, you and I have both applied for funding from the government from like various agencies. You guys are dogs of the state. <laughs> no. <laughs> there no, Sarah's right. And there the the parallels are actually really funny because like the basically as like a state alchemist in Amestris, you are almost like the perfect parallel would be almost like a a researcher or a professor at like an R1 institution in the United States. Either at an R1 institution or at, like, um, a military base. Honestly, full offense, the way that some of the researchers slash professors at these R1 institutions act, I'm not going to call it comparable to war crimes, but it is comparable to, like, the severity of terribleness of Kimberly's outfit, at least. <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, I think there's, like, really something to be said for, like, the ego and, like, how that affects yeah. how you look at other people around you, right? Yeah. Badly. (laughs) (laughs) Some of our systems could learn something from the Full Metal Alchemist system. And maybe we could, uh, they could have learned something from like our systems. I mean, like, uh, I mean, the one, like, I guess, like, similarity is that they obviously like the grants. So, like, all state alchemists actually get a grant for their research. And under their rules, they can use the funds and it's said whatever they deem fit. There's no, like, this has to be equipment, this has to be for, like, resources, like... They don't have to budget like we do. No, they, they can use their money for whatever they want. Yeah, they can just splice their wife to their dog <laughs> and buy fancy technology for their arms. But sometimes it works out really nicely because Ed one time paid that one lady who helped him out at the library mm-hmm. a lot of money because oh, yeah. he wasn't doing research. That was it so sweet. It can be altruistic, but I guess the idea is that most people, when they have that kind of money stop thinking about like the nice things and start getting really fixated on like technology improvements mm-hmm. without thinking about you know the repercussions of why they're doing certain things 
Hey, but at least we're not researching how to, like, wipe out people. Aren't we? I'm not. You're not. (laughs) Sarah's not. (laughs) Excuse me, I'm researching brain cancer. Sarah's trying to save people. (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) I was trying to help people get source access to clean energy. I thought you were just making shit glow, Marcus. That's for funsies. I mean, that's what I like to tell people. But oh. <laughs> that, that uh that's a much better um if you want to tell someone like what you work on if you're like at like a coffee shop or a bar. It's like, oh I mix stuff glow in the dark. Why would you say that instead of I'm trying to produce renewable resources? You know because what? one's kind of a lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, here's the thing is that stuff like Full Metal Alchemist loves to make it seem like people are doing research and can achieve such grand like steps in their research like this dude like discovered how to make fire and i'm like sure i'm trying to treat brain cancer what i'm really doing is making a couple of polymers and putting a couple of drugs on them it's and not then you like you go home mad about it and then i go yeah. home mad and then i write a paper that <laughs> in the conclusion says maybe one day this can cure cancer so like this is why you got to start splicing dogs to your partner and your children i'm just saying it's like kind of a lie also to be like yeah i'm curing brain cancer but the advances that Amestris is able to make through alchemy probably has a lot to do with the fact that, like, this is a completely, like, military-funded project, but it's also integral to their entire economy. So, like, everything relies on, like, alchemy getting better, technology getting, like, better. And there's, like, you don't really see, like, it. most of, like, the, I guess, commerce is really just, like, shops. Like, there's not, like, giant, like, corporations at this time. So, like, what people are really, like, spending their time yeah. doing and, like, investing a lot of resources in is, like, alchemy and, like, well, obviously, like, weapons, too. Right. Especially because they show the alchemists are definitely not just, like, state-funded alchemists. And if anything, alchemists look very poorly on state-funded alchemists mm-hmm. for, like, turning their back on um, the altruistic, like, ways of helping people in exchange for grants and being a military yeah. dog. Like, mm. the whole idea is that the entire country runs on alchemy to some extent. Exactly. And like in like in because of that, like when you are a state alchemist, like you there are like you have like a lot of freedom, but there are like kind of three big rules that like you have to abide by. And like one is like obey the military, which like basically means at any given moment, like you could be sent into like war, like which would be like crazy if we had to do this like in the real world. Like if we decided to be sending PhD scientists like to the front lines, yeah, because that would go well. <laughs> yeah, that goes so oh my great. God. <laughs> Oh it's like God. science your way out of this conflict. Oh, okay. What a <laughs> fucking image. What? I gotta give me a second to revel in this. I just amazing. I will say amazing. that Fullmetal Alchemist makes scientists look way cooler than they actually are. Yeah. <laughs> they make us look like yes. extremely proficient at like life in general. I would say anime in general makes a lot of things look cooler than they actually are. (laughs) Yeah, but I usually don't see scientists in anime unless they're like crazy scientists or like Mm. obviously the bad guy or if not the bad guy, clearly doing just some weird funky experiments, you know? Yeah, Mm -hmm. you're right. Uh, So, but the other uh, like two rules, and we already talked about this, were like do not create gold and do not create humans. Like, I mean, the do not create humans one, I mean, like I think that makes sense (laughs) for the most part because I think most people that have, I guess, dabbled in human transmutation have like seen the truth and know what happens and so they're just like i feel like if alchemists are telling other alchemists not to do this it's a lot more of like a trustworthy thing yeah and i think also the idea is we kind of like touched on it when we were talking about the alchemy episode but that like no one thought it was possible to make a homunculus anyway Mm -hmm. unless you were part of the deep state government conspiracy of like (laughs) oh actually this country was made for this express purpose yes exactly 
but the the one that uh kind of makes me think that the state alchemists probably have a better situation than a lot of our like scientists is that they're told not to create gold and they don't which means i'm assuming they're getting paid really really well if they're told like don't create your own money we're gonna give you basically enough money that you wouldn't even want to create it these are huge grants that you're getting as a state alchemist I think that's the idea is because, like, Ed gives that one lady, they don't show the number, but everyone no, freaks out. Huge. So it must have been, like, a crazy yeah. amount of money. And, like, just, like, for a perspective, like, some of, like, the bigger grants that are, like, handed out, like, something like an NSF, like, DMR, like, these can be, like, ten, hundreds of thousands of dollars for, like, single years. So I'm assuming the state alchemist are probably put another zero at the end of that. And you're talking about millions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, they're on the level of like center grants, right? Like MERSEC, like multi-university or multi-departments within a university, several professors, like. But that's like, that money's with one person and just out there exploring the world doing alchemy. This is only tangentially related, but I feel like the the quality or rather the standard of living seems generally pretty good, right? Yeah, I mean, that dude who did the the human splicing, uh, the Mm -hmm. Camaro stuff, like he lived in a very large, nice house. And the whole point was that he was scared he was going to lose his money because he couldn't afford to live there anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. So clearly that dude was making some fucking cash. Oh, yeah. And and that's the one thing, and and I guess it's like another parallel, is that the, every state alchemist has to submit like an annual report detailing the results of their research for the past year and to prove that they're using their grant money. Man, I know that grant feel. Like, <laughs> like there are grant review process, there's renewal processes with like real grants, and if you... If your uh, agency doesn't see that you're making progress with like your science, like you will not get renewed for your center. But the, the one thing that I feel like we could incorporate into our society that the Fullmetal Alchemist uh, state alchemist system uses that we don't is their examination process. Because you're going to be in battle, like you have to have a certain level of like physical uh, aptitude to even be a state alchemist potentially. But also you have to pass the psych eval. And I'm not here to call anybody out, but I think it would do grad school great if every single professor had to pass a psych evaluation before they were given access to hundreds of thousands of dollars in funding. See, I thought you were going to say, I'm not going to call anybody out, but they clearly failed because Kimberly was a state alchemist. Something <laughs> clearly went wrong in that fucking pipeline. That is true. <laughs> that dude is clearly not fine. This is clearly not the most robust screening system. I feel like, okay, the, hear me out. The state alchemists are kind of like astronauts because they have to be like really good at science and also good at having a body. Yeah, like physically fit and like smart and mentally stable. That is true. They are like astronauts. Yeah. No, that makes sense, actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay, fantastic. I did it. That's, That's what a much it, better if, connection. <laughs> if all scientists had to be astronauts. Certainly wouldn't be that many left. <laughs> Shout out to astronauts in general. Shout out to, yeah, shout yeah. out to astronauts, shout out to space. Yeah, space is rad. Shout out to the round Earth that we live on. Oh, wait, it's, <laughs> we're not on a flat planet? <laughs> All right, let's save this astronaut shit for when we do some sci-fi shit. Okay, well, so, and I wanted to come up with, like, a better bridge for this, but uh, the, I guess the, <laughs> the reason the state alchemist system actually kind of took a hit recently was because of, like, this whole, like, human sacrifice genocide thing. Like, oh, a lot oh, of people press. actually, yeah, I know. After, like, everything that happened with Ishval, a lot of people actually, um, abandoned the state alchemist s- system because it, it they kind of, like, became clear to them that, like, a lot of, like, the hierarchy and the power that this nation's been able to establish itself upon is due to all of, like, the human sacrifice that they've committed. 
And you know what is another parallel between our world and the Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood world? It's human sacrifice. Yeah, bummer. All right, I need to brace myself for this because I'm someone who gets like a lot of sympathetic pain. I'm I'm not there will this is not going to be gory or okay. like really like overt. Honestly, okay. I learned a lot because what I was really interested in was more or less the um some anthropological advancements and some archaeological advancements because in the past like people would like look at graves and be like, "Oh, like look at all of like these subjects that love their king so much and like decided to just like bury themselves with their king and now due to like science and databasing of information we can kind of retell the story in a more factual sense like people maybe didn't want to be sacrificed um but yeah so the two um articles that i found that really interesting these came from like reputable journals and i want to start and these are like open access papers so if people want to learn more they can like read all this shit um, the first one's by uh, Laura Spani. She's a um, like a science journalist. Uh, has published a lot of different papers around pandemics and um, also about like human sacrifice. And in the article, she quotes um, this other professor from um, Joseph Watts from the Max Planck Institute, um, where he says that uh, social elites use human sacrifice as a tool to instill fear and show their power. Um, as far as tools go, it was a pretty bloody and dramatic one. Yeah, I mean, which... <laughs> that checks out. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Like, yeah. I mean, the I guess the focus of the article was kind of looking at how we're reassessing how we view human um, sacrifice through, like, a historical lens by yeah. compiling, like, um, first-hand accounts and into databases and then doing, like, statistical analysis to actually test hypotheses. There are two main databases, and they're basically comprised of about, like, 400-plus societies over around 10,000 years. Uh, the first one's called uh, Pelotu, mm-hmm. which in Samoan mythology is actually the land of the gods. That's where the name um, comes from. And so what uh, the article that was based on this database showed was that basically as societies became more stratified and had, like, more hierarchy between classes or, like, races or even, like, religions, you saw an uptick in human sacrifice there's like a strong correlation it's like oh hey more people are getting excluded from stuff we're gonna be killing off more people to validate this yeah it it was just kind of like a way society kind of developed like and it wasn't really like restricted to like specific regions this was just like a cultural thing over years like people have kind of shown that if you kind of start taking out one group of people other groups of people listen and kind of follow rules and it's a way to organize society i mean that makes sense like the fear of seeing several people killed, I mean, exactly. would easily cause anyone to just kind of be like, okay, I'm just going to go along with this guy, right? Like, <laughs> Exactly. This is bone chilling. It's pretty horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, and it works in uh, full metal alchemist. Like, it, like this metal is alchemist. like full metal alchemist. <laughs> full metal alchemist. <laughs> but yeah, like this is like the only reason that they're able to basically sustain their power is like, oh yeah, we know a mistress is just murdering people at the border. So we're going to back away from our border as, like, a nation. We're just going to leave them out because, like, they're, like... We're not going to fuck with that, right? It's not like there's any kind of, like, trade or, like, agreement that you can come to with this country. It's like, we need to just kill more people here. Yeah. So that's what we're going to continue doing. The The other database that was referenced in the uh, article was called uh, Seshit, which is uh, named after the ancient Egyptian goddess of record keeping. So pretty good name. That's rad. I really like that, what actually. What a rad goddess incredible and this is actually uh this database looked at larger uh societies i think the one with the previous database was probably limited to societies of like a hundred people a million people or less and this one was uh 10 million and above and what they basically showed was like a similar level of like yes there's a correlation 
um, between like the stratification of society and human sacrifice. But also, um, it kind of also facilitated this transformation into like god kings. And like ultimately, like you see this like falling off of like social cohesion. Like there's only so much sacrifice you can take before people just kind of, I'm not trying to see people get killed every weekend. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. There's a tipping point of like so much death. <laughs> yes. But it, it's just because it like it works to a certain point, like you are going to see like your society become more like not maybe more like technologically advanced, but more organized with the introduction of human sacrifice. But then it's going to crash. Is that tipping point one that is a matter of like time that human sacrifices are happening or like scale of do you know what I mean? Like, is it like after, yeah. after years of it's time? It's okay. definitely time. And I think they in I, I would have to like go back to the article again, but I think they reference that at certain points you start to see at this like breaking point is where a lot of monotheism starts to come into place and it becomes better Why? for social cohesion. Yeah. So it like you go through this point where it's like, okay, like we have like a bunch of different gods and we're gonna say to kill a bunch of people and now we're like, okay, we're gonna unify under one god and not kill as many people, but this is better for social cohesion. This is weird that this is like a thing that has been replicated and can be like yeah. tracked and studied as a like phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Is it a correlation or a causation thing? So, it, I mean, all of these are, like, statistical analysis, so it's all, like, correlation. Like, no one's, like, trying to, like, put cause to this, sure. but it's just, like, there is, like, clear association. Yeah. Well, if you look at, like, a society at a certain period of time that has a certain level of, like, stratification within mm-hmm. it, and how much human sacrifice was, like, associated with that particular nation. Yeah, but I mean, like, you can imagine, like, if, like, you were in modern day Amestris, like, with a database like this, like, you would probably know a lot more, like, what actually went on within Ishval versus in the show. Like, people were just like, oh, it was just, like, a war. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, like, a massive cover-up of, like, the actual extermination and, like, the war crimes that were being committed and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and history's told by the winners. That's just- <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's yeah, straight up, right? <laughs> how it's gone. That's why I just don't listen and forget all of it. <laughs> That's my version of historical revisionism is just to forget everything that I learned about the about the winner's version. <laughs> God, what a nightmare. Uh, yeah. And then so that that was kind of like the one of the more interesting articles I found. And then like the last one as a, I'm going to try to wrap things up here um, was way more sciencey, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of using different kinds of analytical techniques to kind of continue to work that uh, uh, Laura Spiney talked about in her article was just like providing a little bit of light to some of these human sacrifices that we kind of think about throughout history beyond what is just written down by the leaders of those like groups. The winners. Yeah, the, <laughs> the winners. Um, so this was a study that actually came out in 2017 um, from some bioarchaeologists out of Simon Fraser University in Canada. They uh, used... Um, stable isotope analysis to actually correlate diets of skeleton or I guess uh, remains of people that were from this I think it's called the Jinchu grave or it's in it's right outside of Jinchu China okay um I, I can't remember exactly like when uh, these uh, bones got there but I guess they found a lot of what are called oracle bones um, which have like inscriptions on them which are like tend to be on like human bones or turtle shells or on ox bones so it's the bones that oracles use for oracling not the bones of oracles I don't know well maybe they use the or- old oracles as oracle bones <laughs> Who knows? I, I, I don't <laughs> um, but basically yeah like they're divination kind of bones or that's yeah. like what bones are usually used for right in that way mm-hmm 
Um, and these were actually some of like the earliest known writings in uh, China. Damn, that's old as shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the inscriptions actually suggested that many of these sacrificial victims were from um, foreigners mm-hmm. um, from that the Yunchu uh, like dynasty, I guess, like captured during war, and they were able to um, prove it out based on like their diet. So, looking at like stable isotopes like carbon thirteen, nitrogen fifteen, or like sulfur thirty four, they could basically get an idea of like what the diet in Yunchu was and the isotopes that would correlate it with that and these particular bones did not have that same like food web that would correlate to that um isotope analysis so they can almost pretty huh. conclusively confirm or confirm that these were not native people for- to the yinchu i have to imagine that using foreigners makes that period of time between when you start sacrificing and when it stops being effective i have to imagine that makes it longer right it's like well that's not my you know it's not my mom not my bones <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's interesting, though, versus, like, looking up bones and, like, uh, like some mass grave and thinking, I don't know, like, you see, like, that throughout history, right, of, like, people, like, servants or slaves being buried with, like, yeah. leaders. And, like, obviously, the lack of consent of being buried with a leader is pretty clear kind of thing. But if they're not clearly servants or slaves, like, without that kind of analysis to know if they were, like, taken from elsewhere versus, like, a voluntary thing, I think it would be very easy, right, for, like, mm-hmm. the, yeah. the leaders of some area to be like, no, this is voluntary. Like, this is for a good morally good reason kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that like carries a lot of weight like in history if like if you always like believe what's done is like just because it's like oh like that's what these like scholars said at the time and you're just like blindly following this and it's like oh this was actually just like some foreign people that were taken to be sacrificed and yeah so like science is kind of like <laughs> providing some insight to history which is always um awesome. The the article mentioned kind of two other kind of bigger uh, discoveries one related to uh an excavation site in uh, native like Incan uh land that they looked at some of these uh, children bones or child bones in these grave sites. And um, I guess there had always been some like theories that maybe some of these children were not like just willing participants in a lot of the sacrifice. Well, and so, yeah, what? <laughs> yeah. There was the, what kind of a theory? No, but like willing versus like super forced into it versus coercion from several years of like believing oh. in like the religion or the teachings or the like, I see. societal rules kind of thing. Right. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. I don't know. Yeah, that, yeah that's like it's all like coercion, do. but like at what level mm-hmm. is the coercion happening? Yeah. Yeah. And so kind of like the interesting things that they found was that some of these children, I guess, like based on the chemical analysis of like their skull had ingested large amounts of like corn and meat, which like would have probably at the time would have been like exclusively for like people with like means, um, not people that were probably going to be like go into like a sacrificial like tomb, as well as uh like m- amounts of like cocoa leaves. So they were kind of like inebriated and fed so the i guess like some of like the working theories are like so like they were probably like mildly like sedated and also like fed like prior to like their like sacrifice so they i think they're trying to like like provide some like insight to kind of like the ritualistic aspect of like what went into like becoming a victim or like a victim of like sacrifice Mm -hmm. in these cultures Mm -hmm. so kind of an interesting thing that like i mean you could always like document like oh yeah like people said that they clench like cocoa leaves in their teeth occasionally but like now you have chemical analysis to prove that like these remains actually had coca in them Mm -hmm. and the last one actually used um ct scans at um from the excavation site of the royal cemetery of ur which is in um modern day iraq uh that was actually first uh one of the i guess the main or the most famous archaeologists that discovered the site was for leonard woolley um i don't know anything about this person but like i think in the 1920s when 
rich people found things they wanted just to kind of create a story that yeah man sounded nice oh, yeah for sure right like you would create some like crazy thing to like be like these yeah. bones are super cool and special for this reason and i'm yeah. just gonna make up crazy shit because you guys are gonna believe it well so woolly had a, a similar but yet somewhat different approach he he suggested that these human sacrifices were there uh voluntarily with like very little evidence of this oh yeah sure and they gave up their lives to serve their superiors in the afterlife <laughs> i mean you said this is from like iraq this excavation yeah. site okay so this also like clearly has like evidence of like yeah of like people looking at like foreign countries and like having i mean specifically with this like this orientalist view of like i don't know the mysticism and the occultism yeah. and like yeah viewing them as this like wow look at these weird people who do these weird things and like yeah it's also very theatrical in a way that makes like for a good uh dinner party story when you get back to england with all of your stolen riches that's just what I'm saying though, right? Like the objectification and the dehumanization is easy when you're talking about like yeah. foreign countries. Yeah. And it's really easy when you have no kind of analytical techniques at the time that can say otherwise. Mm -hmm. But luckily over the past decade, we've come up with a lot of different techniques. Um, specifically, they've been using CT scans on a lot of the remains. Mm -hmm. And a, and not all, but at least some of the people in this grave site were killed by a blow to the head. And that is like, no. without well, yeah. any doubt from the CT scan, meaning that these were not just willing human sacrifices that just loved their fearless leader so much that they just gave their lives. Like, these were just probably slaves. Or right, like, they didn't, like, go in here to, like, slowly die with him. They, yeah. like, were now, killed and thrown in. Well, now, what's to say they weren't like, I love this leader so much, please hit me on the head and then put there, me in with You him. know what? <laughs> you know what? That is a perfectly plausible uh, hypothesis. So, you know what? Like, keep, keep the fire now, alive. I'm a scientist. Oh boy, I've done it. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it's it's cool how a little bit of science and statistics can help us paint a more clear picture of of uh, human sacrifice as it relates to human civilization. Woof. And how similar we are to fictional societies such as a mistress. Is that your expert opinion, Marcus? And I would like to conclude, and that is my expert opinion. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks for listening to In My Expert Opinion. Please remember to rate and subscribe. We'd also be grateful if you'd leave a review with your expert opinion on why this podcast is rad. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at expertoppod, or email us at inmyexpertopinion at gmail.com. Later, nerds! <laughs>